0: All right, good morning, church. Good morning. About 10 years ago, I went cross-country skiing with Greg and his family. Now, I'm a decent skier. Greg and his family, they, like, grew up on skis. They're Norwegian, Swedish. It just kind of comes with the territory. So we were skiing in the mountains of eastern Washington, and we've been skiing all day, and I was exhausted because I'm not... I did not grow up on skis, so I'm ready to go home. And we decided, you know, it's getting dark, we should go back to the car. And uh, we take a shortcut trail to get back to the car. And you can imagine what happens next. It was not a shortcut. 45 minutes later, we realized we had actually taken a trail that was taking us all the way back around the backside of the mountain. But it was too far to turn back, and we had to keep going. So at this point, it is now dark, it is snowing, I'm still exhausted, I was exhausted 45 minutes ago, and I had developed this horrible Charlie horse in my shoulder, and that meant I couldn't use my left pole. So my arm is hanging limp, my left arm is hanging limp down by my side, I'm dragging my pole, and that means I don't get enough power on this side, so I'm kind of shuffling along, and I start to fall behind the rest of the group. And then it dawns on me, We're in the mountains of Eastern Washington, which is cougar territory, and it is dark, and I am the weak and wounded animal that has been separated from the pack, and I am perfect cougar bait. And so the rest of the time, I'm like looking over my shoulder convinced I'm gonna get attacked by a cougar. And I didn't, we made it back to the car safely, but to this day, we refer to that ski trip as the time I almost got eaten by a cougar. So something that I have learned since then is um, that actually makes a lot of sense to me now is that many species of animals have this deeply ingrained survival instinct to hide their weaknesses, to hide their sicknesses, their injuries for that exact reason that they don't want to signal to a predator, I'm a weakling, I'm perfect cougar bait. So for example, birds are experts at concealing sickness. And this is true even of birds in captivity. So if you have a pet bird, they, when they're sick, they pretend to be well. They continue to sing. They continue to preen their feathers. They even go so far as to fake eat. They'll go down and like pick at their seed and pretend to eat. And you might not even know that your bird is sick until it literally falls off its perch and dies. That's what birds do. Another one that's kind of interesting is the Scottish red deer. So Scottish red deer do something very interesting when they're sick or they're wounded. They actually separate themselves from the herd for a time until they're better. And at first, scientists used to think they did this to protect the herd, that they didn't want to be a liability to the herd. But the more that they studied these animals, they realized, no, this is actually self-preservation. So the logic being that a herd is much more likely to be noticed by a predator than a lone deer. And if a herd is noticed, it's the weak and wounded, sickly animal that's going to get attacked. And so even though long term, it's not good for this deer to be by itself, it's going to take that risk that while it's sick, it doesn't actually feel that the herd is safe. And so it hides from the herd when it's sick, or when it's wounded, or when it's weak. And so what I think is really fascinating and what I want to talk about today is the way that humans do the exact same thing. And it's not about our physical survival, but I would call this a social survival instinct. Something that's so automatic, it's, it's like it's ingrained in us to hide our weaknesses from each other. We do not want people to see when we're weak, broken, messy, sick, and we want to project something else. We want to project a better version of ourselves. So maybe some of you in the room are like birds, I think I'm a little bit like this. You suffer silently with a smile on your face. No one has any idea that something's wrong until you literally fall apart one day and everyone is shocked. Some of you are birds, hiding something painful underneath. Some of you are more like deer. When you're sick, when you're hurting, when you're wounded, when something is painful in your life, you begin to isolate yourself from community. And sometimes that's about a fear of being critiqued or criticized, or sometimes it's just you don't want people close enough to see your mess. And for whatever reason, you feel like you're heard, your community isn't safe anymore. And so you begin to pull away, and you'd rather suffer alone. Some of you are like deer. So as Andrew mentioned, we're in the middle of a series on emotional health. We're in week four. Just to give a little recap of the last three weeks, Week one, we looked at Jesus as an emotional person, the emotions of Jesus. Week two, we looked at exploring what's beneath the surface of our emotions. We talked about our emotions like an iceberg. There's things on the top we can see, and there's things underneath that we can't see that we need to learn how to ask what's under our emotions. And then last week, we explored the impact of the past The impact that um, our family systems, we inherit things from our family systems that kind of affect our current reality and God's invitation to freedom. So that brings us to today, week four, and we're going to talk about the ability to own our brokenness and our weakness and live vulnerably as a key component of emotional health. That's what we're going to look at today, brokenness and vulnerability. And I want to say one quick word about brokenness. I don't always love that word because oftentimes we use it, it's just a euphemism for sin. When we're using that word today, when I use that word brokenness, it's actually more than that. So it does include sin. So the the screen earlier in the confession, one of the ways we define sin at Sanctuary is legitimate longings that have gone astray. These are places in our lives where we've stepped outside of God's good design for us, stepped outside of God's best. So there's some parts of brokenness That we are responsible for, that we would call sin. But then there's other parts of brokenness that we're not responsible for. These are the the places in our life where we suffer because we live in a fallen world. So we experience the negative impacts of other people's sin. We're broken because other people wound us. Or we just experience things like disease, infirmity, death, all kinds of things that is not anybody's fault. It's just the reality that we live in a world that has fallen. So when I say brokenness, I mean all of that. And what we're going to suggest, what I want to suggest, is that emotionally healthy people are honest and vulnerable about all of that, our sin and our failure and our weakness and struggle and pain. Essentially, emotionally healthy people do the exact opposite of hiding. They somehow override that instinct. And why is that a sign of emotional health? If you think about it, people who can live vulnerably and allow people to see what's really going on, by necessity, those people are secure, they're humble, they're honest, and they're free. And that's the kind of people we want to be. And that's the kind of people we actually think God can help us to be by his grace, by his healing. And so we're hoping that today, we might begin to take a step forward on that journey. And so if vulnerability is what we're aiming for, it seems like this instinct to hide our weaknesses is going to be a problem. It's going to be a major barrier in our pursuit of emotional health. And so today I want to look at what is this survival instinct? Where does it come from? And then how do we override it and stop hiding? So that's where we're going to go today. So first, what is this survival instinct and where does it come from? So I want to bring us back to that iceberg analogy. I think we have a picture. And um, so on the surface, this instinct to hide, there's lots of reasons that we might feel like hiding. So maybe you would identify with one of these things. Maybe you're afraid of being judged or punished. Maybe you're afraid of being exposed. Maybe you're afraid of being rejected. That's mine. So that's why I hide, I'm afraid of being rejected. Maybe you're afraid of being hurt or experiencing pain. Maybe you're afraid of being seen as a failure or a disappointment. Maybe there's something else I haven't listed, but each of us has a reason that we tend to to have this instinct to hide our brokenness. So there's lots of reasons on the surface, but what I wanna say is, I think what's underneath all of them in the iceberg, that under the surface that we can't see, so we experience these fears, What's under that, I believe, is shame. And so I want to talk about shame and its its relationship to that instinct to hide. So Kurt Thompson, who wrote a book that I was just introduced to called The Soul of Shame, and I highly recommend it. So if, if shame is something that you're interested in, write that book down, The Soul of Shame, Kurt Thompson. He defines shame as a tool of the enemy designed to bar us from connection with God and others and prevent us from using our gifts. A tool of the enemy designed to bar us from connection with God and others and to prevent us from using our gifts. Hiding would be a great way to do that. So we most often associate shame with feelings of guilt. When we've done something wrong, that we don't just feel like we've done something wrong, we feel like we are wrong. And so that's Shame, but you can experience shame when you haven't done anything wrong, when something wrong has been done to you. So shame is the voice that tells us that something we've done or something we've experienced has permanently marred us and made us unworthy of love. Shame is the voice that twists reality and lies to us. So again, not you made a mistake, but you are a mistake. It's a twisting of something that is true, but it's actually, shame makes it into a lie. Shame says we're not enough, we'll never be enough. We're fundamentally bad. Our kids always want to ask us in like movies and stuff, is he a bad guy? Is Who's a good guy? Who's a bad guy? And we actually say there's no such thing as good guys and bad guys. No one is fundamentally good or fundamentally bad. We are people, we do good things, we do bad things by God's grace. We are holy and righteous, but we are not fundamentally good Bad people. Anyway, um, so shame is the voice that tells us we are bad, we are not good enough. Shame is the voice that tells us to hide and to keep our brokenness safely in the dark. So some of you probably immediately recognize this voice. Some of you know that shame is a struggle for you. And I want to tell you this morning, I believe that you can experience freedom. I do. I've seen people freed from the power of shame. And we hope that today might be a step in that direction. So if you are struggling this morning, I just want to be a voice of hope and say, there is hope. You can be freed from this um, battle with shame. So the relationship between hiding and shame is a pattern that goes all the way back to the very beginning. So I want to bring us back to Genesis and to the garden. So if you remember back to the creation story, Adam and Eve are created by God. Everything else in God's creation is good, but then Adam and Eve are very good. And they're created to live in perfect intimacy, transparency, and vulnerability with one another and with God. And so Genesis 2.25 says this. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This verse, this is the epitome of, of human vulnerability, the ability to stand naked before another human being and not flinch or hide or blush. That is vulnerability and trust and intimacy right there. But that didn't last very long. So as soon as Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they ate the fruit, which really just means they went outside the boundaries that God gave them. We all do that all the time. Chapter... Three, verse seven shows us something shifted when that happened. So verse seven and eight. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife then heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid. First, they hid from each other by covering themselves from each other, the same nakedness that yesterday didn't bother them at all, and then they hid from God by hiding behind a tree. And so we can see the concept of shame at work here in the hiding. It's not just that they hid what they did. It's not that they went to God's face and lied to God's face and said, we didn't do that. That would be hiding what they did. They hid themselves. There's a twisting here, not just that they did something wrong, but that they themselves at their core are wrong. Not that they made a mistake, but they are a mistake. Not that they did something bad, but they are bad. And that is so internalized that even their very bodies now seem to be full of shame and worthy of hiding. They're hiding is this automatic, ingrained, instinctual survival mechanism that we all experience today. This goes all the way back to the garden. We know exactly what this feels like. In verse 10, we hear Adam actually describe this instinct in his own words. So verse 9, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And aside... A little aside here. God pursues them, and this is the beginning of God's pursuit of humanity that continues to this day. God doesn't let them stay hidden. He looks for them, and there's this is a loving, where are you? So God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And so Kurt Thompson shares this reflection on Adam's statement, which I think is really helpful. God's call is met with the man's admission that one, he hid because two, he was afraid because three, he was naked. The progression from one to three is the simple universal cycle of shame we all experience. We inhabit a world in which we have inherited genetically, epigenetically, generationally, and culturally the tendency to hide in response to the fear that is evoked by awakening to our vul- vulnerability. Yeah, that is deep. So I want to know, how do we stop doing this? How do we stop hiding? How do we learn to practice and even pursue vulnerability when vulnerability is the thing that makes us afraid in the first place? How do we stop this cycle? How do we override this instinct? We need to figure this out. And so I think there are four steps, four ways, and that's what I want to focus on for the rest of the time. So first, we need to live in the right story. We need to live in the right story. So the survival instinct that we're talking about, it's based on the narrative that tells us that survival is ultimately about insulating ourselves from pain. That's what it means to survive, don't get hurt. And that we actually vulnerability needs to be avoided because of its potential for pain. That's what this narrative is telling us. But clearly, this is not working for us. So hiding our weakness, hiding our brokenness, sure, that may save us in the short run some pain, some embarrassment, absolutely. It also, by definition, puts distance between us and people and us and God, meaning we're also insulating ourselves from the ability to be fully known and fully loved, If we insulate ourselves from pain by hiding our weakness, we also insulate ourselves from love. And we were designed to be fully known and fully loved. So this is not working for us. This will actually kill us. And so we need a better narrative about what survival is and about how pain, weakness, and vulnerability fit into that. Amen? Okay. So here is the story that actually is out there. There is a story that is better. It is the best story there is. And so I actually want to speak to people who don't know Jesus. If you're in the room and you are not a follower of Jesus, listen to this story. It's the best story you're ever going to hear. So this is the story of God. The truest story of all, the best story of all, is about a vulnerable God who enters human brokenness and doesn't reject it, but welcomes it and stays in it. It's a story about a God who so desperately wants to be fully known by humanity that he's willing to make himself vulnerable. He enters the human story as a naked, vulnerable infant. You don't get more vulnerable than that. And it's a story about Jesus who loves us so much that he's willing to endure everything on that list. So all the things, all the reasons I listed out of why we hide, why we hide our brokenness, because we don't want to experience all these things. Listen, Jesus says, yes, he is judged, he is punished, he is hurt, he's rejected, he's exposed, he experiences pain, he's viewed as a failure. He does all those things, he welcomes all those things because he loves us and he wants to be fully known by us. That's crazy and that's beautiful. And then ultimately the crux of this story is about Jesus saving the world through an act of incredible weakness and pain and vulnerability. He hangs naked on a tree to save humanity who began our story hiding our nakedness behind a tree. That is beautiful. And that act of vulnerability, that act of human weakness and really human failure becomes the greatest victory story in the story of God. God takes something as horrific as the cross and he saves us with it. And so all of our weakness, all of our brokenness, all of our sin is removed. I mean, our weakness is there, but our sin is removed by this act of vulnerability and love. That is the story we need to live in. And that story reframes some really important things for us. So first, it reframes survival. So what if survival was not about freedom from pain, not about insulating ourselves from pain? What if survival is actually about attaching ourselves to this vulnerable God and modeling our life after his? If true survival is about looking like Jesus, it is going to involve the pain that comes with a cruciform life. In other words, if we want our lives to look like Jesus, we need to follow him to the cross. And that is going to involve pain. True survival involves pain. So that reframes that for us. What if survival isn't about avoiding vulnerability, but about knowing and being known fully by God? If that's what survival is, to be known by God and to know God, it's going to involve the vulnerability that is necessary to be known. And so survival is not about avoiding these things, but it's about welcoming them in God's presence. Pain and vulnerability are actually part of what it means to follow Jesus and to model our lives after His. That is not the story we've been told our entire lives. So it reframes survival. It also reframes weakness. So in this story, weakness is not something to hide, weakness is not something to be afraid of. Weakness is the It gives God the opportunity to put his resurrection power on display. If God can take the cross and use it to save the world, God can take anything you give him and redeem it. Nothing is beyond his power. Nothing is beyond that resurrection power. Your weakness, your sin, your suffering, none of it is beyond the redemption of God. And so weakness is not something to be hidden but something to freely offer to God and say, what can you do with this? In God's story, weakness is not so much a liability as raw materials for God to get to work and put his glory on display. That is what weakness is. And we need to hear that. This story reframes what is survival and what is weakness. So someone who clearly knew what story he was living in was the Apostle Paul. So Paul, who wrote over half the New Testament, planted most of the churches in the known world at the time, and who was also under intense scrutiny and criticism by some people. When he was writing his letters to these churches, he had every reason to fill those pages of his letters with, you know, boasting about his strengths and his accomplishments and defending himself. And yet this is Paul who calls himself the chief of all sinners. And he says things like, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in hardships and insults and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. The only way you get there is if you live in the right story. Only someone who lives this story where weakness is just an opportunity for God to work would be crazy enough to boast about his weakness. So following in Paul's footsteps, I actually felt like, how can I preach a sermon on vulnerability and weakness and not tell you anything about my own weakness and vulnerability? And I, wanted, I felt like I needed to tell you this this morning. So when I was preparing this sermon... I felt like I ended up embodying it this week as I confronted over and over again this week my weakness. So um, I love preaching. I could stand up here all day and preach. I won't. I will keep it nice and short. But um, the process of preparing a message is often excruciating for me, it is very difficult. Um, So I, this. This week, I'm a, I'm a very linear, concrete thinker. And I think that that becomes a weakness when you're trying to arrange abstract concepts and ideas. So I struggle. I get lost. I get confused. I feel like I can't, I can't figure this out. And then that spirals me into another weakness, which is self-doubt. And so I end up in this spiral of just complete self-doubt. So midweek, I was pretty sure I wasn't going to get to Sunday with anything to say. And then I felt like God was saying... Do you believe the words that Paul is saying that you are preaching on? Do you believe this? Why is it so difficult for you to just admit that you're weak? Why is it so hard for you to say, I'm not very good at this. I need help. Why is it so hard for you to just fall apart and say, "Um, God, I need you? So there I was, middle of the week, literally praying, God, I don't know if I can do this. My brain doesn't work the way I want it to. I'm just embroiled in self-doubt. And so I'm praying these words of Paul, would your power rest on me? Would your strength be made perfect in my weakness? When I am weak, would I somehow be strong? And I made it to Sunday. So, um, <laughs> so but I think it's important for us to know in God's story, weaknesses are not a liability. They're an opportunity for us to fall on our knees, to fall apart and say, I am not God. I am human, I am limited, and I actually need God to do this. And that's, you know, a weakness is an invitation to that. So we need to live in the right story. Secondly, we need to know who we are. So one of the ways that shame works in our life is it actually takes something that is kind of true and twists it, and it tells us a lie about ourselves, And so um, I'm going to put up on the screen a bunch of lies that shame tells us about ourselves. So these are some shame stories. So something on this list may pop out at you. I'm unlovable. I'm undesirable. Unworthy. Not good enough. I don't measure up. I'm a failure. Insignificant. I never do anything right. I'm a disappointment. I'm weak. I'm incompetent. Worthless. Bad. Mistake. There's probably something else that's not up there. So mine is that I am undesirable and unlovable. That is at the core, that is the story that shame tells me about myself. And I've been trying to figure out where did this, what's the true thing that this like is a twisting of? Because this didn't come from my family of origin. And I think I've been able to trace this back to some really painful experiences of social rejection in junior high. We've all been there. There were real things that happened to me, but shame twisted them and said, not that I was rejected, but that I am unlovable. And so that story is like 20 plus years old, and it still has power in my life when I give it power. When I say, actually, I agree with that. And so when I agree with that story, that story dictates how much I share about myself that dictates what I choose to hide. My, the way that shame works in my life with hiding is I'm afraid if I reveal too much, I'm gonna type myself as needy or messy or whatever and I'm gonna be rejected. I'm going to be typed or labeled as undesirable. And so I don't want people to see that. And so I think it's important for us to know what is the shame story, how is it lying to you, And that's the first step to freedom is being able to say that's a lie. It might have come from somewhere real, but it's a lie. It's not true. And so if something on this list is punching you in the gut right now, I want to encourage you um, on the next slide to write, write down that shame story and then write down these two questions. Do I have any idea where this idea comes from in my past? So what's the true thing that got twisted? And that just takes the power out of it. And then are there any ways I continue to agree with this story? And that's where we start to realize our, complicit, our complicity, complicity in, um, in this story. So we need to recognize the lies, but then we need to know who we are and we need to root ourselves in truth. What is the truth about who we are? So in comparison to these lies. And I think the best place to go to root ourselves in truth about who we are is Matthew 3.17, the words that were spoken over Jesus at his baptism. So God spoke this blessing over Jesus, and by virtue of our union with Christ, we can apply these words to ourselves. And so when you hear these words, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, it just neutralizes that shame story. So for me, this is my daughter whom I love, with her I am well pleased. You hold that up to I am unlovable, no, you're not. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well-pleased. It just completely neutralizes the power of that story. So it's important not only to know the lie that we're believing and giving power to, but to know the truth, and that is the truth. We need to know who we are. Thirdly, um, and the next two points are quick and self-explanatory. Thirdly, we need to be honest with ourselves. Before we can stop hiding from each other, we need to stop hiding from ourselves. Some of us are so unsure of what we will find inside when we stop and look that we are so afraid to even look. We don't want to know the darkness that's in our heart. We're afraid of what we'll find. Being honest with ourselves takes courage and it takes humility. So it's the courage to admit for the first time you have a drinking problem and you need to go to a meeting. That takes courage. It's the humility to admit, I have some areas to grow. That seems really simple, but sometimes that is so hard to admit. Why is that so hard to admit? I need to grow in this area. That takes humility. It's the courage to stop avoiding the the things that have been nagging us, the places where we think we need help. Time to go to a counselor. Time to go to a doctor. That takes courage. It's the invitation from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in uh, the way everlasting. Have you asked God to search your heart lately? And have you sat still long enough to let him answer? So one practice that I would recommend if you are struggling with being honest with yourself is to keep a journal. And maybe start with that Psalm 139. It's Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search my heart. Show me if there's any anxious thoughts. Write, write down what comes to mind. Pastor Andrew and I were talking about this earlier, and he had a great diagnostic question Are you keeping the kind of journal that when you're finished with it, you would like to burn it? What's in your journal? Are you being honest with yourself? And if you're not, why not? Let's stop hiding from ourselves. And then lastly, we need to be honest with others. So this step also takes courage and humility, but it's the natural outcome of walking through the other three steps. Once we live in the right story, once we know who we are, once we've been honest with ourselves, it is not that difficult to find one person to be honest with. We become secure, honest, humble, and free as we walk through these four steps. So the application for this step is not necessarily to go and boast about all your weaknesses like Paul in public and put them out on Facebook. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. But it's to find one person that you could hand your journal to. One person that you could be fully honest with. if, If there's no one in your life that you can be fully vulnerable with, that you don't have to hide from. I want to encourage you to find one person, and then maybe another, and then another. But here's the thing about that. If we're going to encourage that, we need to be the kind of people who can allow people to be vulnerable in front of us in safety. So if someone comes to a home group looking for a place to be honest, looking for someone that they can be vulnerable with, and they can't find that, that's on us. Okay, so if you, if you are struggling to find one person to be vulnerable with, church, I want us to be people who can be safe people for other people to share their weakness with. Um, all right, so we need to live in the right story, know who we are, be honest with ourselves, be honest with others. This is how we override that instinct and stop hiding. So as I close, I wanted to give us um, just a concrete, picture of what this looks like to live in brokenness and vulnerability and emotional health. I think sometimes somebody like Paul seems kind of distant to us. He's, he lived 2,000 years ago. We kind of build him up in our mind as a spiritual hero. And I just I wanted to give you a, a more recent picture, a more personal picture, just something to attach to you today. And this is, um, yeah, a personal example for me. So I, I have a picture here. This is my mom. And um, so my mom, her name is Hallie. She has been in ministry for over 40 years. And a couple years ago, she was diagnosed with a terminal degenerative neurological disorder called multiple systems atrophy. It's basically um, her mind remains intact, but her body will fail and is failing all around her. She's going to lose all of her voluntary nervous system, all of her mobility, and all of her involuntary systems as well. So mobility, speech, blood pressure, breathing. It's a horrific disease and a horrific way to die. Um, So my parents run a ministry out of their home. They have people come and stay with them. They lead retreats. They counsel people. They have people who come and pray with them around the clock, this kind of monastic community that comes into their home, And I have been struck by how my mom, who endures what I would think are some pretty embarrassing or humiliating effects of this disease, she falls. Her speech is slurred. Um, She has to have assistance with everyday normal tasks. My mom has never shut the doors of this ministry. She continues to invite friends and strangers in And she has never flinched. Come on in, come see me fall over. Like, come on in, I don't care, come on in. And so I asked her, when I asked her for permission to share this story, like, mom, does it ever bother you? Like, do you ever feel like you wanna hide? And she was like, no, um, I've never been the kind of person who wanted to pretend to be someone I'm not. What you see is what you get. So I'm like, okay, but mom, that you, that's really remarkable. Like, you, don't you get, like, not everybody is like that. Where does that come from in you? That makes me think that it's something about walking with Jesus for 40 plus years. She became a Christian in high school. And the way she answered that question, at first I was like, where are you going with this? And then I realized how profound this is. She told me when I became a Christian, when she became a Christian, she said, God gave me a picture that I was trying to make myself good for him. I was trying to clean up my sin. And it was like the equivalent of emptying a barrel of sand with a teaspoon. It was laughable. And so from that moment on, I just felt like I need to depend on God's grace. He sees everything, and I'm just, I'm just his. And he needs to empty that bucket for me. I can't do it. And so I realized my mom has spent 40-plus years walking a road of discipleship where she has been humble and vulnerable about her sin before God and that has prepared her to receive additional brokenness and frailty in her body with just incredible humility and grace. And that is so profound. And that's the kind of person that I wanna be. I wanna be someone who can be naked like that, can be vulnerable like that, cannot flinch. And here's the thing. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, referring to um, ministers of the gospel, he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, the container of our life does not need to be flashy or special for us to do the work of God and to allow others to see him. And that is like my mom. The power of God is often displayed even all the more so in an unremarkable, unflashy, ordinary container, a weak and broken vessel. Somebody I know recently visited my mom and reflected, in the struggle and joy of it all, you look like Jesus and you make me love him more. And that is what we want. We want to be the people whose weakness and vulnerability is not We don't see that as something to hide, but we see it as an opportunity for Jesus to be known and for his power to be displayed. And so as we close, I'm going to invite us to the communion table. And I want to give us a few things to reflect on and a few invitations for prayer. So some of you this morning, some of you that story, that was the first time you've heard this other way to live. And if today you want to say yes to that story and to a relationship with Jesus, there'll be prayer ministers on either side and just tell them that. They'd love to introduce you to Jesus. Some of you uh, need to hear those words from Matthew 3.17. This is my son, this is my daughter whom I love. You need to hear those just spoken over you. There's nothing shameful about coming for prayer. It's not just the broken people who come, but actually it is because we're all broken. But you know, if you're afraid that going up to prayer signals like, hey, I have a problem, guess what, me too, you know? Come for prayer. But someone can just speak that word over you. This is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. Just ask them to do that. Some of you have a shame story that you identified. And if you did, that thing that like punched you in the gut, I want to encourage you to go get prayer and tell them what it is and they can help you actually renounce that lie and then they'll pray the truth over you. So just some invitations for prayer. But as we come to the communion table, this is the um, yeah the greatest display of vulnerability and love. Jesus poured out for us, broken open. Christ's body broken for us, Christ's blood shed for us that we might know God and be his forever. So, communion servers, welcome you to the front, and I'm going to pray for us, and then come up to the table as you feel led. God, you are so beautiful. Your story is so beautiful. Lord, what you can do with weakness is remarkable. What you did with the cross is so spectacular. We thank you for your cross. We thank you that we are cleansed. We thank you that we are welcomed into your family. God, we thank you that you don't reject us. And so would we learn to be people who stop hiding because we know we are loved. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.